Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. It doesn't really matter, does it, how old you are or whether you're male or female or how much money is in your bank account or what kind of personality you have, does it? You've all been hurt. We've all been hurt. And maybe just in the last week, maybe that hurt has come from a spouse. Maybe it's come from a family member, a friend, a coworker, a, a neighbor, someone maybe even you never met who offended you and hurt you. We all experience hurt regularly. All of us know the pain of relationships going south and even the pain that accompanies good, healthy relationships. Maybe someone took advantage of you. They didn't follow through on a commitment. They didn't pay things back. They didn't keep a promise. When that happens, what's your response? Do you have conversations with them? Or do you just nurse a low-grade feeling of resentment toward them? Maybe it's a family member and you've got distance in that relationship, so you have a sibling and you get together and you go on a vacation together. About day two, you, they start to get on your nerves and you go, why am I here? Why am I violating the 48-hour rule? Anybody else have 48-hour rule of family members? Or how about marriage? Relationship experts say that you are either drifting toward isolation or toward connection, depending on your daily behaviors by which you choose to turn toward one another or away from one another. Some here can remember the joy of a wonderful wedding day, but you also know the pain of a divorce in that relationship. The point is we've all experienced hurt in relationships. It's no surprise I mean, Genesis tells us it's because of this problem of this thing called sin. Adam and Eve had this wonderful relationship and with each other and God, and, and there was no shame. It was just real authentic love and, and, and healthy vulnerability and no secrets. And then they chose to sin, and the first thing they did was hide from God, and then they started to hide from each other, kind of like, you know, fig, tree, fig leaves are going to do anything and really help, right? That's always been a funny image to me. Transparency was gone. Their oneness was hindered. We see their kids struggling with relationships. Cain kills his own brother. Later on it continues. Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright and so on. All throughout the Bible we see examples of sin naturally pulling us away from others and putting up dividing walls. And relationships are difficult because they're between two people who sin. So we talked in the Roman series about how Paul describes all people are born into sin. Someone once said, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Some of you are too young to remember that. We see throughout the Bible, sin is never, ever an individual issue. It's not just an individual choice. Sin always has social consequences. Sin eats away at the fabric of our relationships with each other. And relationships are hard work. We're flawed people. It's easy to write people off and put barriers up to self-protect. We put barriers up with people who are made in the image of God, who God is actually still pursuing and still working on and still loves. Now, I, I recognize fully in a lot of our relationships and many of our relationships, we need to have healthy boundaries. 
But Paul told us in Romans, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's kind of the guiding question of this next message in our intentional series is, have I done everything I can do to be reconciled with those who have wronged me? Is there something more God might be inviting me to do? Since relationships are our mission, a relationship with God and with others, we need to be intentional about how we handle relationships with flawed people, meaning everyone. Because when you put people together, even in a church, there's going to be hurt. We're going to get on each other's nerves, which is all the more reason we as followers of Jesus are called to be intentional about reconciliation, meaning the restoration of relationships. When we think about it, reconciliation sums up the entire Bible. It's God's plan in history. It's God's plan with us. So how does he want us to live this out? Now, we've also talked about how reconciliation is not always possible. Yet we still have to ask ourselves, what is our role and our responsibility? So as we continue this intentional series today, we're going to dive into a small little book in the New Testament highlighting two more unknown people and how they did reconciliation. We know about them because while Paul the Apostle was in a minimum security prison, he writes a little personal letter, only 25 verses long, 500 words, to a man named Philemon about a man named Onesimus. Now one of the things I love about this book is that I think sometimes when we think about God, we can think, oh, he's just too busy with the overall picture. Not really that in, that, that, paying that much attention to my individual needs and my individual wants, my daily life. But this letter to Philemon reminds us that God is intensely personal and he cares about your individual needs and your individual wants. Philemon was a wealthy man. He had servants and slaves and was a prominent leader in the church in Colossae. In fact, the church met in his home. Onesimus was his slave, which we will talk about more in a moment. Now it appears that Onesimus stole from Philemon and escaped to the city of Rome to start a new life. But God kind of set him up in a new twist and Onesimus meets Paul and he becomes a follower of Jesus. So Onesimus becomes really close to Paul during this time. But Paul knew there was unfinished business between Philemon and Onesimus. So Paul doesn't seem to even give a thought to the idea of obeying Roman legal law, which would have required him to report a a runaway slave. Paul is more focused on Onesimus and, for us, the idea of what does reconciliation look like. Paul does the unthinkable. He sends Onesimus back to see Philemon carrying the letter to the Colossians and this short letter that he wrote to Philemon. According to Roman law, understand, Onesimus could be facing death or jail for running away. So imagine what this must have been like for him to first see Philemon and hand him this letter, which reads, let's read it, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, to Philemon, our dear brother and fellow worker, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. 
It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who has become my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong and owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. So, <laughs> a little bit of, you know... Still put a little authority in there. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, let's be honest. This book is really difficult, especially for many African-American brothers and sisters, to hear Paul say Philemon owns a person. It, it, it triggers so much feeling from the history of African-American slavery and racism. And it seems to some like Paul does not clearly denounce slavery here. So there have been actually some who have read this letter and they refuse to read anything else by Paul because they're offended by him not being more assertive in this. That is incredibly sad because Paul does not endorse slavery, even in a little bit. We need to understand that although slavery was occasionally practiced in Israel, it was not widespread in Israel and was carefully regulated to protect the slave, and including the Old Testament law, setting a time limit on when all slaves would be set free. The kind of slavery where you take someone captive and force them to, into labor was explicitly condemned in the Bible. You can see it in Exodus 21 and 1 Timothy 1. Paul puts slave traders in the same category as those who kill their parents, adulterers, and perjurers. Rome, on the other hand, was built on the back of slave labor. Every time the Romans conquered a new province, they added new slaves to the empire. Historians say that during Paul's time, there were actually more slaves than Roman citizens in the empire. Slavery was so commonplace, so accepted that in their day, no one thought to seriously oppose it. For Jews, on the other hand, the kind of slavery seen in these days was actually more like indentured servanthood. It was part of the economic system. If someone became extremely poor or overwhelmed by their debt, they could sell their labor in agreement for lifelong employment to pay off their debts. They would sell themselves to a wealthy person like Philemon. Now, again, this is not necessarily good. It isn't a good system, and God did not design our world for us to own each other. It says we're to take dominion over the earth, not other people. And the New Testament message around this can be summarized 
Do to others as you would have them do to you, in Jesus' words. Love your neighbor as yourself, in Jesus' words. Treat each other as brothers and sisters. In Christ there is neither slave nor free, but all men are equal, in Paul's words. Just a side note. Did you ever think that it was weird that Paul would close many of his letters by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss? A kiss in that day symbolized equality and family relationships. It was a consistent reminder of the kind of love that we should have for one another. So before you leave today, make sure and give somebody a kiss. Just not me. What Jesus and other writers of the New Testament show us is that in Christ, masters and servants become brothers and sisters. The gospel undoes any form of slavery. See, Paul is planting seeds in this letter to undo the slave system. If God would have said through Paul, the system is wrong, get rid of it now, what do you think would have happened? Would Jesus' followers have focused more on getting rid of the system or would they they have focused more on the transformation that happens in each person when the gospel penetrates their lives in a way that can change the world? See, Paul always prioritized the foundation for change being in the gospel. And then out of that, like he does here, he challenges whatever opposes it. The letter to Philemon was the key document by the way, used by William Wilberforce and all the abolitionists in Europe and and the U.S. who campaigned against slavery, many of whom were compelled to do so by their love for Jesus. The greatest efforts to stop slavery came from Christians who realized how horribly inconsistent slavery was to the things that the Bible taught. One renowned 18th century potter, Josiah Wedgwood, Wedgwood made this medallion that was mass-produced and went viral. It was the symbol of a slave in chains kneeling with the words, Am I not a man and a brother? It became the universal emblem of anti-slavery movements around the world and helped gather support to stop slavery. And there is no doubt that the branding was taken directly from Paul's words in Philemon where Paul told Philemon why he was wanting Onesimus to return to him so that their relationship would be changed no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. It's interesting how Paul leads Philemon in this change of heart toward Onesimus. He says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order or command you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal for you on the basis of love. Paul consistently stresses throughout this writing and other writings how as an apostle he could pull rank. But instead he deliberately doesn't do that. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, he says, so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntarily. I think there's something about the gospel and about the way we present it that wants to lead people to a personally owned decision. And that's where transformation happens the best. It's very clear what Paul wants and expects Philemon to do though, isn't it? But it's still up to Philemon to make the choice. Paul is pitching here that Philemon is to do more than just forgive Onesimus. He doesn't ask him to take him back as a slave. He's being invited to embrace Onesimus and celebrate his return no longer as a slave, but a beloved brother, one of the family. Because at the core of the gospel is this reality, that all things are made right 
through Jesus and the gospel. We can talk about justice, whatever form that discussion happens in, when there, are, there needs to be wrongs that need to be righted. It's about making those things right. I love the way a pastor in New York City, Rich Villados, says it. He says, justice, very simply, is about having right relationships one with another. To do justice means that every person is taken seriously as a human being made in the image of God. In our actions to help with justice in our world, we help both individuals and challenging our nation. We are to do the business of that, by, by, of helping justice be done. We stop abuses. We punish wrongdoing. We don't, but we don't stop there, is the message Paul is giving us. We take the step to not just bring justice, but to bring reconciliation, where relationships are restored. Because that's the message of the Bible. God gave his son so that we too could have a restored relationship with him and restored relationship with each other. So how do we live this out? We could draw a number of conclusions from Philemon and Paul's writings. First, as they said, we realize any relationship will include very flawed people. We're bound to have issues, issues, aren't we? Pardon me. Don't you think it would be really helpful if we all came with like a big warning label right here, pasted on our chests, that said, this person will sin, this person may gossip, may lie to you, may hurt you, may walk away from you, may disappoint you. Second, if we want to have healthy, deep, rich, meaningful relationships, we must choose to do the hard work of reconciliation. We take on ministry, the ministry Paul tells us about. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, us, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God reconciled the world to himself and gives us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the heart of our mission, every single one of us in this world. It is the heart of what we are all about in being relational as a people following God. And third, we take responsibility for our actions. Again, we've all hurt people. You and I have said things we should not have said where we've hurt someone that, and we, we need to take steps to make it right. Paul sent Onesimus back. Again, just, just think about that. I know we talked about it before, but just think about the pain and the fear Onesimus would have had. Again, Philemon had the right to imprison him at the very least, whip him, beat him, and possibly kill him according to Roman law. It wasn't wrong for Onesimus to want to be free But Paul is kind of painting us a picture that there's a better way to do it. We need to take responsibility. Onesimus returns saying, I'm going to go back and I'm going to own my mess. I'm going to apologize for the wrongs I've done. By the way, an apology is not, I'm sorry you took it that way. An apology is owning your behavior and what that has caused. I'm sorry that my actions, these specific things, hurt you. And if you were to do it over, you also include in that what you would do differently. We don't just sweep things under the rug. 
Maybe it's actually helpful to think of it this way. Reconciliation requires an autopsy. The basic question of an autopsy is, what happened? What was the cause of the pain and death? You need to know clearly what went wrong so that you can get clarity and closure so you can move forward. We can't skip this stage. We have to talk about what is your part if you are the one who wronged or hurt or offended or violated someone. What is your role in reconciliation? What does God desire for you to do? And we talked about this earlier in the year that forgiveness is a process and that reconciliation is not always possible. Let me be clear. For those of you who have been sexually abused or violated, the focus does not often include figuring out how to repair the relationship with the person who assaulted you or violated you, who still is likely a threat to you. The goal is justice, forgiveness, and for you to heal. But for the 95% of other situations where we've been wronged or wronged somebody else, let's review how Paul wanted Philemon to walk this out. Paul does not tell Philemon to say, it's fine. Let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's never deal with the truth of what happened. No, because reconciliation means we talk. It means we have messy conversations, difficult conversations. Paul is not saying to ignore the offense. In fact, Paul says, if he has done you any wrong and owes you anything, charge it to me. There was wrong done. It needs to be dealt with and made right. I actually find it really puzzling. This has happened a number of times in life when somebody who's unfaithful in their marriage comes to me or comes in a counseling session and says, why do we need to talk about this? Just forgive me and let's move on. No. We're going to have to talk about it. Cheap reconciliation avoids talking about the wrong, and it leads to short-lived surface relationships that fall apart, that never really become what they are longed to be. We need to have the messy and hard conversations. It concerns me when two Christians are married who receive Jesus are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they filed for divorce on grounds of irreconcilable differences. Now, there are biblical reasons that divorce may be a good option. However, irreconcilable difference is not one of them. Paul continues, he says, So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. This word receive is a really powerful word. It's often used in the context of inviting someone to one's home to have a meal. This kind of receiving reconciliation is more than just receiving an apology and saying, I forgive you. It's about being in relationship with another, eating together. Uh, I love funny surveys. There was a funny survey done a while back. It's kind of silly, but it's really meaningful. They asked the question, what would be the phrase you would most like to hear in life? And the most popular result was, we can probably guess it, I love you, right? And the second most popular one was, I forgive you. The third most popular one surprised me. It was, supper's ready. And this is the fourth point. Supper's ready. Like Paul's encouragement to Philemon, we welcome them. We receive them back in relationship, eating at the table, enjoying relationship with one another. When you think about it, isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? Isn't that what God has done for us? Coming and saying, I love you. 
I forgive you and supper's ready. There's a place at the table for you. See, God wants a close personal relationship with you. And that's what we get to live out with one another as well. That's the ideal. It's also pretty impossible without God. Here's an example. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison for conspiring to overthrow the government in South Africa for, because of the apartheid all-white government. Now, some of his choices in fighting were done in anger and violence. In fact, Desmond Tutu once described Mandela as the most angry of them all. Mandela pleaded guilty to 156 acts of public violence, including bombings that killed women and children. He continued fighting against apartheid even during his 27 years in prison. Mandela spent the first 18 of those 27 years in the brutal Robben Island prison. He was confined to a small cell without a bed or plumbing and was forced to do hard labor in a quarry. And once a year, he was allowed to meet with a visitor for 30 minutes. And every six months, he could write or receive a letter from someone. But prison changed him. Mandela learned about forgiveness and how to make enemies your friends. There's another person you may not have heard about. Christo Brand was 19 when he became a prison guard, and he was warned he would be guarding the most dangerous of terrorists. Over the next few years, Mandela made a friend out of this jailer. And Brand describes the change of his relationship with Mandela this way. He says, he was my prisoner, but he was my father. After getting out of prison, Mandela, as we all know, if we've studied history, became the first black president of South Africa. And people, when he first became, were really wary. Is this, is this going to be the Mandela of the violence, or is this going to be a different Mandela? Are we all, should we all fear for our lives now? And one of the things that reassured the hearts of so many in South Africa was that Mandela gave his jailer, his friend, Christo Brand, an important job in his administration. And they remained friends all of Mandela's life. See, this is a picture of reconciliation. Not with violence, but with relationships. And this image reflects what Paul and God's desire is for us to imagine a day in which we are seated around the dinner table sharing great affection with everyone. Commenting on the difficulty of the reconciliation in South Africa, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who worked with Mandela, said it was pointed out that none of us possess a kind of fiat by which we can say, let bygones be bygones, and hey, presto, they become bygones. Our common experience, in fact, is the opposite, that the past, far from disappearing or lying down or being quiet, has an embarrassing and persistent way of returning and haunting us unless it has, in fact, been dealt with adequately. Unless we look the beast in the eye, we find it an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. It's not easy, is it? And you may say, I absolutely cannot do this in some of the relationships and circumstances in my life. And you would be right. You can't. I can't. We can't. Yet may we never live a Christian faith that is dependent upon us, apart from God, we live dependent upon the third person of the Trinity who lives in us and astounds the world with the beauty of the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel that should make a difference in our lives, the gospel that can make a moderator of an atheist chat room argue for the faith and become a follower. 
How do we work this out? I want to be clear. God is not asking us to white-knuckle this and force ourselves to reconcile and be restored in relationship instantly. This is a process. We may be hesitant because we don't feel safe, and that may be a very right feeling. Or we don't know what needs to be done, and it feels like have no idea how to make it happen. It feels impossible. Your job is simply this. It's to open your heart to what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do next. It's not about forcing you. It's about you being open and standing there and saying, Holy Spirit, what can I do right now? What can I do today in this relationship to live more at peace with all people? to let God lead us intentionally into healthy relationships. I mean, look at the incredible, powerful ramifications that came through Philemon choosing reconciliation. Church historians believe that Onesimus became a pastor, a prominent pastor and a leader in the Ephesus church. We also already saw how Philemon and Onesimus' story was the foundational book for abolitionist movements all over the world, stopping slavery, choosing reconciliation, even when it's hard, has earth-shattering, impactful effects. Reconciliation doesn't give up on people. God didn't give up on Adam and Eve, and he doesn't give up on us, you, either. Neither does reconciliation say, let bygones be bygones. God pursues us even when we reject him. God doesn't gloss over the consequences of wrong. He paid the price for them. Now, it's always a good day to do communion. But today it seems particularly meaningful as an image of coming to the table. Reconciliation is fully seen in Calvary where God says, I have done everything to foster healthy relationship with you at an infinite cost to myself. I sent my son to reconcile the world to me and to each other. If you will just receive the gift and submit your life to me, God says, I love you. I forgive you. And he says, supper's ready. Come to the table. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. You're already here. But I pray that your presence would manifest even more powerfully in us, that we would encounter and know your love, that the areas of our lives where we hold you at a distance, we would allow you to come close. And Lord, would you give us the joy of not only being reconciled to you, but of being people who bring reconciliation and healing in ways beyond what we can imagine in earth-shattering ways, in ways that change generations for the good. And Lord, now as we turn our heart to you, Lord, we recognize that sometimes we get so focused on us and all the ways we fail and all the ways we don't think we can even get through something. Lord, I just know that you call us to worship you in those moments, to give our voice to you, to be reminded of who you are, not who we are. So now as we turn our hearts to worship, Lord, would you receive our voice and our praise and inhabit 
our praise with your presence that we would see who you are, the way maker, the God who can do anything. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.